There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There's stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Christine Hartwig, and I'd like to talk to you about Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. Now, who was Robert Dudley? He's famous as Elizabeth I's great favorite, and he's considered the great love of her life. But how did they get to know each other? Well, Robert Dudley was the son, in fact, the fourth surviving son, of John Dudley, who successively bore the titles of Viscount Lyle, Earl of Warwick, and finally Duke of Northumberland. John Dudley's own father, Edmund Dudley, had served as a kind of minister to Henry VII, and had been executed early in the reign of Henry VIII, in order to please the crowds. Now John Dudley, Robert's father, nevertheless made a brilliant career under Henry VIII, serving as Vice-Admiral and later Lord-Admiral. And under Henry's son, Edward VI, he achieved maximum power, serving as Chief Minister to the Young King. We don't know for certain how much time the young Robert Dudley spent at court, but at one point he must have met Elizabeth, because he later told a French ambassador that they had first become friends before she was eight years old. It's fascinating that their topic of conversation was marriage, even then. Elizabeth said she would never marry. Now it is often said that she was inspired to say such a thing by the fate of her stepmother Catherine Howard, Henry VIII's fifth wife, who was executed when Elizabeth was eight years old. And of course this may be correct. As to Robert Dudley's acquaintance with Edward the Young King, we know even less. Robert served as a gentleman of the Privy Chamber from August 1551, but at that point he was already 19. This was the same day that Barnaby Fitzpatrick, the king's good friend, was appointed to the Privy Chamber, and Fitzpatrick also became a lifelong friend to Robert Dudley. This, the king was also present as Robert's, at Robert's wedding on 4th June 1550, which was celebrated at the Royal Palace of Richmond. It seems certain that Robert, who was five years older than England, Edward, knew, him, knew the young queen quite well. As we see in Robert's father, John Dudley, rose to the heights of power during Edward's reign. In the summer of 1549, 
when Robert was seventeen, major protests and rebellions occurred in England, and John was appointed to go with an army to Norfolk to suppress one of those, Kate's Rebellion. His sons Robert and Ambrose went with him on their first military adventure. It turned out a bloody business, but before the fighting started, the Dudleys and the other officers made camp at Wymondham at the house of Sir John Robsart. Now Sir John Robsart was a wealthy gentleman farmer, and his only legitimate child was Amy, a girl of seventeen. Amy was almost the same age as Robert, being fourteen days older. Now there was no particular reason that John Dudley would choose this girl as a bride for one of his younger sons, and it seems likely that the marriage of Robert and Amy was a love match. William Cecil, who happened to be a wedding guest, certainly believed so. Amy and Robert would have lived mostly in the huge household of Robert's parents, and mostly at court, although periodically they may also have lived in Norfolk. In the summer of 1553, John Dudley, now Duke of Northumberland, projected to place Lady Jane Grey on the English throne after the death of Edward VI. The project turned out a total failure, with Robert, his father and all of Robert's four brothers ending up in the tower. His father was executed, while the brothers were all spared for the moment. However, in January the next year, another rebellion broke out, Wyatt's Rebellion, and Robert's younger brother Guildford was executed with his wife, Lady Jane Grey. Both had nothing to do with the rebellion, although Jane's father was deeply involved and got also executed. Robert and his surviving brothers continued in the tower, where they were allowed visits from their wives, including Amy. After the brothers' release, Robert and Amy experienced some financial difficulties, but by 1558 they were looking to rent a house in the country, so they could have a residence of their own. Alas, on 17th November of the same year, Queen Mary died, and Elizabeth, Robert's old acquaintance, if you like, ascended the throne. For, Rep for Robert, this meant brilliant career prospects, as he could be confident that he belonged to Elizabeth's best friends. William Cecil was another of these men and women. On the second day of the reign, Robert received the prestigious office of Master of the Horse. In this office, Robert was always next to the Queen on any outdoor pursuits she might undertake and he was the only male person to be officially allowed to touch her, when helping her in and out of the saddle. It soon became clear that there was no place for Amy at court, and later there were rumours that Elizabeth even forbade Robert to visit his wife, and if he must, that he should do nothing with her. These were allegedly the words of William Paget, a senior statesman now pensioned off, but an old friend of the Dudleys. Amy lived in a succession of houses belonging to Robert's retainers or friends, in Hertfordshire, Warwickshire, and what is now Oxfordshire, but she also made travels to Lincolnshire and London. It is often implied that because she did not have a manor house of her own, there was one in Norfolk, but it was uninhabitable, she could not have felt at home or had no independent life. This is quite untrue, though, 
she directly received the proceeds of her lands, those she had inherited from her parents, who both died in the 1550s, and she paid her own household of about ten servants out of these proceeds. Robert seems not to have interfered with that, although in theory it would have been all his. It's interesting that he would pursue a similar model with his later wife, Lettice. She also managed her own household and finances even when living as Robert's wife at Leicester House in the 1580s. It is often said that Robert Dudley never visited his wife in the last year of her life, but we can't be sure about this. What does seem certain is that she ceased travelling during 1560. She was reported to have been ill the year before, but then apparently had recovered. Then on Sunday, 8 September 1560, she was found dead at the foot of some stairs leading down from her chamber at Cumnor Place near Oxford. Her servants, whom she had sent away for the day, were shocked. So was Robert, who was staying with the court at Windsor. A servant brought him the news. I do understand that my wife is dead, and as he says, by a fall from a pair of stairs. Little other understanding can I have of him. The greatness and the suddenness of the misfortune does so perplex me, until I do hear from you how the matter standeth, or how this evil should light upon me, considering what the malicious world will brute, as I can take no rest. Robert was keen that a proper and thorough investigation should be conducted, not least to exonerate him from any suspicion. He is regularly criticized for this, but we shouldn't forget that such letters were written to his servants or people like William Cecil, Elizabeth's chief minister and Robert's political rival. It is unfortunate that no correspondence seems to survive between Robert and any of his wives, either Amy or Lettice. The coroner's inquest started almost immediately after Amy was found. It concluded in Latin that after stepping out of her chamber she fell down certain steps and to the bottom of said steps, sustaining two head injuries before breaking her neck of which she died. At the time and ever since theories about what happened to Amy Dudley abounded, especially murder theories. The notion that she would be murdered by poison actually started soon after Elizabeth's accession, well over a year before her actual death. Such theories and rumours were most popular with the Habsburg ambassadors, who in 1559 had come to England to promote Elizabeth's marriage with the Archduke Charles of Austria. Robert Dudley was seen as a principal obstacle to such plans, and they would have liked to see him out of the way. On the other hand, rumours that Elizabeth was in love with Lord Robert and wished to marry him in case his wife should die from an illness had started even earlier. Soon there were also rumours that Elizabeth was pregnant by Robert. Such stories of secret children circulated on all levels of society throughout Elizabeth's reign. They simply never stopped and are a great example of why rumours are not necessarily facts just because they are found in historical documents. Now what did Amy die from? I think we'll never know. 
An accident, as described in the official report, should not be ruled out. Statistics about cases about causes of death, as well as media reports, confirm that it is absolutely possible to fall down any number of steps and sustain fatal injuries to the head and neck. Then there is the possibility of suicide. Amy was keen to send away all her servants, and her maid reported how she prayed daily on her knees to deliver her from desperation. She was also described as a strange woman of mind. It is even possible that Robert Dudley himself had a suspicion of suicide at first. The murder theory, in my opinion, is least consistent with later developments. All the people who would have known about the deed, if the rumours were true, survived happily until they died a natural death in their beds decades later. If either Robert Dudley or William Cecil did organise Amy's murder, they surely would also have organised the disappearance of any witnesses, and they certainly would have endeavoured to find and prosecute Amy's supposed killer. According to some London gossip, Sir Richard Verney, one of Amy's previous hosts, was the man who had killed her, or had her killed. Yet he died seven years later in his bed quite unmolested. An old servant of the Dudley family, Robert seems to have liked Verney and later particularly cared for his old friend grandson. Robert's chances to wed the Queen diminished drastically to, due to his wife's mysterious death, which was even talked of in France and Italy. He did not give up hope, though. Although he once told the Spanish ambassador that Elizabeth would never marry him, but only a great prince. But then she had told him that she would marry only him should she marry an Englishman. On her part, Elizabeth once told the Emperor's ambassador that Robert had never dared to ask her for her hand, so he was not her suitor in the true sense of the word. She then repeated once more that she would consider him only that she would consider only him should she marry an Englishman. Elizabeth remained extremely jealous and Robert also became jealous, and throughout the 1560s the court witnessed a succession of lovers' tiffs. In March 1563 Elizabeth shocked an, a Scottish ambassador with the proposal that Robert should marry the Queen of Scots and that they could live all three together in London. Robert Dudley didn't like the idea. He didn't want to wed Mary, Queen of Scots, and only two historians have claimed he did. There are tons of evidence, though, that sh which show that he was extremely reluctant to go to Scotland and become king. The Scottish diplomat James Melville recalled in his memoirs how he was in a boat on the Thames with Robert Dudley, when Robert began to purge himself of the prouder pretense as to marry so great a queen, esteeming himself not worthy to wipe her shoes. Robert said that he feared that if he appeared to be desirous of that marriage, he would lose the favour of both the queens, Mary and Elizabeth. Mary was offended at being offered what she considered to be Elizabeth's discarded lover, but Elizabeth insisted. When Mary realised, however, that with Robert 
would also come a promise to become Elizabeth's heir, she relented. By then, Elizabeth had decided, though, that she could not bring herself to agree to the match. But in the meantime, she had raised Robert to the Earl of Leicester, tickling his neck at the ceremony. She had also granted him the great medieval castle of Kenilworth. Robert, the new Earl of Leicester, had taken his precautions and become a chief supporter of the suit of Lord Darnley for Mary's hand. Robert was a good friend of Lady Margaret Douglas, Lord Darnley's mother, who desperately wanted to see her son on the Scottish throne. Elizabeth's ambassador in Scotland, Thomas Randolph, meanwhile complained that Robert was missing his chance of greatness. He whom I go about to make as happy as ever was any, to put him in possession of a kingdom, to make him prince of a mighty people, to lay in his arms a most fair and worthy lady, so uncertainly dealeth that I know not where to find him. Had Robert Dudley wished to become king of Con king consort, he would not have hesitated to take his chance to become king of Scots, especially as his chances to become king of England diminished by the day. It is clear that he preferred to stay in England, though only as the Queen's favourite. While this decision to stay in England was no doubt good for his life expectancy, he may also have been unwilling to marry a woman who had once offended him by saying that Elizabeth wanted to marry her housekeeper, who had made room for her by killing his wife. We know that Robert did not take the remark kindly. A few years later, in May 1567, Robert's friend Nicholas Throckmorton, another diplomat, wrote, crypt, wrote a cryptic comment in one of his letters to Robert. This night a fair lady lodges in your bed. Sadly, we don't know who this lady might have been. It would not have been Lady Douglas Sheffield. This lady in her twenties had received a strange Christian name in honour of Margaret Dudley's surname. Born Douglas Howard, by 1569 she was the widow of John Sheffield, second Lord Sheffield, and returned to Elizabeth's court as one of the Queen's ladies. There she met the Earl of Leicester. By May 1573, a you observed how Robert was very much in with Her Majesty and that he endeavoured to please her more than heretofore. For there are two sisters now in the court that are very far in love with him, as they have long been, my Lady Sheffield and Frances Howard. They, of like striving who shall love him better, are at great wars together, and the Queen thinketh not well of them, and not the better of him. Then, on 7th August 1574, Douglas Sheffield gave birth to a son. Robert was totally delighted that he now had a son, and the child was named Robert and received his father's surname Dudley. So this was Robert Dudley Jr. The Queen seems to have been happy with this. As long as Robert did not marry again, she was pleased. In a truly remarkable letter, Robert tried to explain to Douglas why he could not marry her. This is really a long letter, it's several sheets of print.
<laughs> my good friend Harvey was I brought up. <laughs> my good friend Harvey was I brought to write to. Let's try again. <laughs> my good friend Harvey was I brought to write in the thought unto you, lest you might conceive otherwise. Therefore, then I mean it. Thereof, then I mean it. But more loath I am. He writes, My good friend, hardly was I brought to write in the sort unto you, lest you might conceive otherwise thereof than I mean it. But more loath am I to conceal anything from you, that both honesty and true goodwill doth bind me to impart unto you. Robert points out that if I should marry, I am sure never to have favour of them, that I had rather yet never have wife than lose them. Yet is there nothing in the world next that favour that I would not give to be in hope of leaving some children behind me, being now ye last of our house. Although in this letter Robert said he still loved her as he did at the beginning, he even offered to help her find another husband, if she so wished. In his postscript he said, I pray you think, and so I do faithfully assure you, this doth rise upon no other cause in the world, but upon your last speech with me, by which me thought it seemed you conceived somewhat, and were not honest for me to leave you in doubt being resolved as I am and ever have been for certain, otherwise and in all things the same as I was will be. This letter, which has survived undated, was almost certainly, certainly written before Robert knew of Douglas's pregnancy. Robert Dudley Jr. was still a toddler when his parents' relationship broke finally down. More than 30 years later, Douglas claimed that they had been secretly married, and she recounted how they met in the Royal Gardens at Greenwich in what turned into a stormy meeting. Robert offered her £700 a year for life if she forgot they were married. When she refused, she said, he departed from her with protestation not to come any more to her. However, they somehow came to an amicable agreement over their son's custody. Young Robert grew up in his father's and his friend's houses, but had leave to see his mother. However, she married the diplomat Edward Stafford in 1579 and left England in 1583. The reason why Robert parted with Douglas sometime in the mid-1570s was almost certainly Lettice Devereux, Countess of Essex. In 1565 she was described as one of the best-looking ladies of the court and daughter of a first cousin to the Queen, with whom she is a favourite. Robert was 11 years her senior and she may have known him since childhood. In 1565 Robert did some flirting with Lettice and Elizabeth's reaction was furious. Ten years later, in July 1575, 
Robert threw a spectacular 19-day festival at his great castle, Kenilworth. Reputedly, he had spent £60,000 on building works there. They were now complete with, a new apart with new apartments for the Queen and a beautiful garden, and he wished to show it all to Elizabeth and the court. The show was also to be a final, somewhat allegorical bit for the Queen's hand. The beautiful Countess of Essex, Gladys, was also there and apparently Elizabeth was not totally pleased. Some of the surrounding gentry were not happy at all and are said to have said that the lord of the castle was a whoremaster. By December, the months Lettuce's husband returned from an expedition in Ireland, a scandal was a-brewing. And another Spanish diplomat reported that great discord was expected between the earls of Essex and Leicester, because of the latter's love affair with the former's wife. In 1567, Walter Devereux, Lettuce's husband, sailed back to Dublin. Allegedly, Robert had pushed for his return to Ireland, yet the evidence in council papers does not bear this out. Even before Walter Devereux had left England, his wife had travelled to Buxton in Derbyshire. Robert Dudley was also there taking the baths. At Buxton, Lettuce engraved a most interesting line onto a window pane on which many prominent guests immortalised themselves. Between the contributions of Mary, Queen of Scots, and Robert Ludley himself, we read, Faithful, faultless, yet some way unfortunate, yet must suffer, L. Essex. Obviously, Lettuce thought the gossip about her relations with the Earl to have no basis in fact. In September, Walter Devereux succumbed to an illness at Dublin. His alleged his alleged dying words had been lamenting the time that is so vain and ungodly considering the frailness of women. No sooner than Lettuce was released from her unhappy personal situation, rumours sprung up that the Earl of Leicester, and by implication Lettuce, was behind her husband's death. The Lord Deputy of Ireland, who was also Robert Dudley's brother-in-law, however conducted an official investigation which did, find any, which did not find any indications of foul play. Instead it found a disease appropriate to this country, whereof died many, including Walter Devereux's Irish girlfriend. The death of her husband left Lettuce in financial difficulties and she also needed to evacuate her house, and the extremely hostile satire Leicester's Commonwealth claimed that Robert had her move up and down the country from house to house by privy ways. The idea, of course, was that he thus intended to hide her, their relationship from the Queen. The same Leicester's Commonwealth also claimed that later Robert and Legis underwent two instead of one marriage ceremony. This is, however, very unlikely. With Legis now a widow, Robert seems to have remembered that during the 15th 76th Parliament, Queen Elizabeth had declared she would rather be a milkmaid with a bucket at her arm than give up her single state. Robert saw this as one of several signals that he was finally acquitted, delivered and discharged, as he put it, from any hope of marrying Elizabeth. 
he concluded that he could finally think of remarriage. He also bought a new house in Essex, Wanstead. There, Robert married Lettice in the morning of 21st September 1578. A couple of friends and relatives witnessed the private ceremony, but the Queen must know nothing. And two days later, she was welcomed as Wanstead as a stop on a summer progress. It seemed as if nothing had happened. Lettice sensibly did not appear in public as Lady Leicester for another couple of years. She simply continued as the Countess of Essex. She was even prepared to be counted as the Earl of Leicester's mistress while living at Leicester House. For a visitor in March 1582 observed that there was Robin, my lord's bastard, by my lady Essex. The visitor was referring to Robert Dudley Jr., who was of course Douglas's son, not Lattice's. But of course such details were not widely known. Not before the late summer of 1582 did Lettice apparently decide to live as Lady Leicester, a fact that once more occasioned Elizabeth's anger. Although she had been aware of Robert's marriage for at least three years. Meanwhile, Robert and Lettice had finally produced a Dudley heir, and both parents were extremely fond of the child. The little, Rod, the little Robert, Lord Denby, as he was called, was surely pampered. He was born in 1581, not 1579, as has often been claimed. Alas, he suddenly died just three years old on 19 July 1584 at Wanstead. Robert was at court, but he immediately left his duties there to comfort my sorrowful wife. As he wrote, Robert and Lettice were absolutely shattered, and Elizabeth was also sorry, though she couldn't bring herself to put her condolences to writing, as this would have implied to address the Countess of Leicester also. Robert suffered considerably because Elizabeth would never relent in her anger towards Lettice. He never stopped trying to bring about a reconciliation between the women, but to no avail. Indeed, even after Robert's own death, Elizabeth's hatred for Lettice, who had once been a favorite cousin, never abated. It says so much about Elizabeth's feelings for her sweet Robin that she could never come over his marriage to another woman. This was not just jealousy on Elizabeth's part, this was a case of a deeply wounded heart. Though married, Robert continued his unique relationship with Elizabeth. On one occasion he wrote her he was her old patient. But he now had finally found what he had always wanted, a family. His residences were also the homes of his stepchildren, Lettice's teenage children by her first husband, Penelope, Dorothy, Robert and Walter. They all had rooms at Leicester House and their pictures hang also there just like one of Walter Devereux, Earl of Essex. The picture of Douglas Sheffield, on the other hand, Robert kept in a casket. Robert Devereux, the new Earl of Essex, was also Robert Dudley's godson. And the two became great friends. Robert Dudley also promoted the young Earl of Essex at court and with Elizabeth. It all looked like a success story. More than 20 years after Robert Dudley's death in 1588, William Camden 
Elizabeth's first ever historian wrote how Robert had been much given to women and finally a good husband in excess. In his will, Robert had bequeathed Kenilworth Castle to his illegitimate, to his illegitimate son. His widow, Lettice, was not pleased about this and would not accept it. And her new husband, Christopher Blount, even raided the castle and castle grounds in order to get hold of valuables and important papers. Queen Elizabeth always helped Robert Dudley Jr., though, who reminded her of his father. After her death he became greedy, though, and wanted to secure the two earldoms of Leicester and Warwick for himself. If he were the son of a married couple, he would be his father's and his uncle's heir. There is evidence that he even put pressure on his mother, Douglas, to achieve this. It all ended in a sensational court case in which he tried to prove that his parents indeed had been married before witnesses sometime in May 1573. Douglas, who supplied written testimony, couldn't remember the exact date, though. Dudley Jr. lost the case and shortly after eloped with his mistress, the court lady Elizabeth Southwell, leaving behind his wife and five little daughters. At Lyon, the fugitive couple, couple converted to Catholicism and married. It seems that if there was a bigamist, it was Robert Dudley Jr., not Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. Thank you, and I'm happy to be at the Tudor Summit. late bloomers tend to have more curiosity they tend to have more resilience there are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men what if everything we've been taught is just all wrong what's worth more than this fear right now and that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being listen to deeply personal insightful and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers listen and subscribe to the unmistakable creative wherever you get your podcasts hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.